This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work Session 9, Moving the Institutions We Are a Part of Toward Anti-Racism Work. The Doing Our Work series continues in Greensboro, North Carolina as multiple presenters discuss the task of moving the institutions we are a part of towards anti-racism work. Presenters include Audra Apt of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, Cindy Dillard of the Unitarian Universalist Church in Greensboro, John DeBeer, a former rector in the Episcopal Church, Bob Williams, a professor at Guilford College, and Katherine Johnson of the Guilford County Family Justice Center. How grateful and honored we are at First Baptist to be host to this conversation tonight. Um, it is a conversation that I've been honored to be a part of with many in this room in my three years in Greensboro, uh, and I'm so thrilled that our church can be host to it this evening. For it is a conversation I think many of us agree is at the heart of so much of what we face as a community. Uh, so grateful to all of those who made this possible and proud that we can be host to it. Our church has been the church uh, assembled of those white moderates to whom Dr. King wrote that letter from the Birmingham jail. Maybe you resonate with that. The kind of people who prefer that negative peace that is really the absence of conflict more than the presence of justice. And so I'm so happy to be in a room filled with people who are seeking the presence of justice here in Greensboro and beyond, and grateful to those who have made this conversation possible, and uh, particularly to Gara and their leadership, and want to recognize Claire Morse now, who comes to tell us more about our program tonight. Thank you for being here. What a, what a wonderful uh, comment to follow. Uh, this is just terrific to see you all. Welcome very much. As Alan said, I'm Claire Morse. I'm representing GERA, which is the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance. It's a two-part group. It has a people of color group, and it has the White Caucus, White Caucus and People of Color Caucus. We meet separately once a month each, and we meet together once a month each. We're following an analysis that Alan sort of referred to, namely that this problem of race in our country is a very, very deeply rooted fundamental problem without, and without resolution of it, we can't get to where we want to get to. So Gera believes, the, the people in Gera believe that we must be addressing institutional issues and institutional change in order to accomplish what we need. This is not about individuals being bigoted or racist, not to say that we aren't, but the change that's necessary is the change in the institutions, which makes our program tonight particularly important, namely how have people in our community addressed the issues of institutional change in the institutions they're a part of. And in a moment, I'm going to turn this over to Audra Apt, who's the coordinator of this panel discussion, but I wanna make a couple of announcements first. Um, in the back, you will see uh, Eric Preston and his wife. They are from Fusion Films. They are filming this. Fusion Films filmed, filmed the series that we did last year. They are filming this year's series, If you want to look at the ones from last year, you can go to their website and find it under Doing Our Work. And this year's film's the same. 
they are doing this as a pro bono, and there's a basket for contributions for anybody who would like to make it uh, to support their work in the future. Again, if you want to see it later on, you'll be able to. Um, and of course, um, we're very grateful for them t doing that. Uh, so tonight's panel is uh, organized by Audra Apt, and I hereby present her this device. Thank you. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Reverend Audra Apt. I'm an, a priest in the Episcopal Church here in Greensboro, and thank you for coming out tonight, for choosing to spend your time in this way on a cold and rainy evening, uh, and thank you for your commitment to our community, to racial equity, and the, a better community for all of us. What we are hoping that we can offer tonight through this panel, there are five of us, and we're, we're hoping that as we talk about how we have, in our own spheres of influence, tried to collaborate and join forces with others to, to move our institutions toward more racial equity, more racially equitable practices, uh, we can stimulate your imaginations or your thoughts or affirm some things you've been doing already and give you ideas for how you might continue to uh, progress in your own work. Perhaps even find some connections uh, and people that you'd like to work with going into the future. So we have a couple of us who will speak from the position of institutional church, whether on a larger scale like a diocese or on congregational levels or community levels. We're gonna speak from a perspective of a church community partnership speak from an academic institutional sphere as well as public service. So we, we hope that whether you are currently engaged in one of these or not, you may find some resonance that, that will help you. As I said, I'm Reverend Audra Abt, and I, up until very recently, I was an assistant clergy person at one congregation called St. Andrews. And so I wanna speak uh, from the perspective of some work that we've done at St. Andrews. So one congregation as opposed to a whole um, diocese or statewide. Um, and I wanna do it in two parts and first talk about uh, what, what we were identifying as some dynamics in, in the congregational life, which I don't think were unique to St. Andrews. We might uh, experience them a lot in our other congregations. And let me pull up my notes here. I wasn't ready, I'm sorry. Um, so the first thing we started to think about, and some of us had gone to some anti-racism trainings and others of us had gone to other sorts of trainings, and we were thinking about uh, what are institutions good for? And one of the things institutions are good for is collecting resources, organizing them, and distributing them in ways that would seem beneficial to members of the institution or the community that the institution represents. Um, it is good for taking a lot of individuals and their resources and amassing those resources and then distributing them. Uh, now, this can be a great benefit. It's what a lot of our congregations kind of base their life on. Uh, but if we're going to think about institutional change or changing how an institution works, part of that work is going to involve uh, helping each other, who are the institution, uh, reimagine what our values are, because our values drive how we direct our resources, right? Um, so reimagine what our values are, who, who we consider to be the we, what we're talking about we, 
And, and only after we do that will we maybe be able to start redirecting or reallocating resources uh, and perhaps expanding who we consider to be we and who is benefiting from those resources. Uh, one thing that we, we started talking about was uh, while we're organized in the Episcopal Church, we have a diocese, which is a huge geographic area, sometimes a whole state, and it collects and in some ways brings together sometimes hundreds of local congregations. And those local congregations tend to be uh, cared for by a priest, and their, their resource needs, their, their family's needs tend to be met by that congregation. And while this is not the case always, often their energies are driven to care for the, the needs and concerns of the members of that community. Their desires, their needs, their, what they think is important. Uh, and and when, when we have that model going, uh, when we talk about communi community engagement or engaging with our wider community, what we're talking about is engaging with people who aren't contributing to the resources that make our congregation go. And that often has led to, and we're trying to rethink this, but it has often led to a model, like a charity model, where uh, how, if, if we're giving money in the community or giving volunteer time, giving of our time and energy, uh, it's, it's really with the understanding that those people aren't, aren't bringing back to our congregation. So we're doing it of our, of our love, of our generosity, um, but they're, they're not members. And that can lead to all sorts of, in re not just odd resource relationships, um, but some power dynamics and, and um, maybe think of others as always needy and not mutual leaders. Uh, it becomes hard to look for the gifts and the leadership among, among the wider community that is not contributing to our community. We, you know, this is something our larger church has talked about. We've, we've analyzed it. Uh, this happens not just in predominantly white congregations, uh, but it, it becomes a barrier to seeing our lives as really tied up in the lives of our wider community and um, looking for leadership and direction from those who are not contributing to our congregation's resources. Uh, second thing we sort of started looking at was how our congregations come to be the way they are. Uh, in, in a parish model centuries ago, perhaps not even centuries ago, uh, people went to the church that was closest to where they lived. Uh, for several generations, that is not the case. Uh, people more often now choose their parish community based on um, the internal culture of the parish, what they resonate with, what their social or political or theological concerns align with. And what this looks like when we do that, it means we've got people coming together in different parishes and they've got similar mindsets and that means they're pooling their energy and their money and their resources toward building up and perpetuating the community they wanna be a part of. Um, of course we look outside our communities. I know I'm simplifying, but uh, when, we re when, we, when we focus our resources this way, uh, when we tend to, bleh, yeah, join forces, not only sharing our money, our time, and our energy with people who are like us, we tend to then want to keep those things going. It becomes a barrier to forming community and uh, putting our energy towards something that will maybe not directly benefit us. So this is something a group, a group of us in our congregation were talking about. 
And it came at the same time where we noticed that there were several members in our community who, who did not represent the dominant culture. Not everybody in our faith community is white, but the predominant culture in our faith community is white, middle class, upper middle class. But we had some members among us who were immigrants, some members among us who were low income, and we noticed that they, they lived in a part of town where we didn't spend a lot of time. There wasn't much Episcopal presence. They also had an experience of being church from their home countries or just a different denomination that, that meant they were more used to doing church in their neighborhood, in their homes. And so they invited people in the congregation, including me, to come and do house church. And we found ourselves being drawn out not just to worship with those members of our community that were among us, but not having a lot of influence, not enjoying, not having a lot of influence over how we spent our congregation's resources, and they were leading us out. And what we found is that in going out and, and allowing leaders that were not exercising leadership in the in internal congregation, that our concerns, because we were bound up together, um, started to look more and more like the concerns of the neighborhood, which was more, not all people of color, but definitely lower income. We, we, we started showing up to community events and showing up some more and showing up some more and not, not taking charge, which Episcopalians, we like to know what, we like to know the right answer. <laughs> we, like to, we like to come in and fix stuff. Uh, we were changed by and being invited to show up and show up and show up again and again until we could build trust and know that we were trustworthy, that we wouldn't just run away when things got um, complicated or inconvenient. Uh, and then we were finding ourselves just in, in, in the living rooms, um, sitting down with people in the movement for black lives and being asked to step outside our comfort zones. Um, but um, we did. <laughs> We thank God for that. And, and what we find ourselves doing is more and more following the lead and collaborating with folks in our community who have a passion that we share now because we've been invited in. And one thing that we got invited to do by our, by our companions is come back to our congregation and start asking questions. Start asking, okay, how, how does the money work here? How do... Um, what ministries get supported by our parish budget and which ministries, uh, if, if they want to happen, have to ask for extra money or be outside the budget? Um, those ministries that tend to have to ask for money outside the budget are ministries that um, involve close collaboration with, with people who aren't members of the parish. And so part of our work that, we, that we've been called to do and that is long work is to uh, position people within the parish power structure decision-making structure to move move money in ways that doesn't just be benefit us internally. I, I will say, so this is, this is a story of, of a ministry that involved from our parish, but we were looking for the leaders that do not represent the dominant culture or representative population in our parish community. Um, I, I should add, um, taking, taking some sort of cultural sensitivity training, anti-racism training, uh, things that allow us to heighten our consciousness about societal structures that are clearly impacting how we live in our congregations, how our neighbors uh, experience life perhaps different from, uh, from whoever we are, 
and, and finding ways to effectively collaborate is, is integral to working in whatever congregational setting. Um, you can't do it as one congregation. I've talked about one congregation. You will, you will find yourself in partnership with other faith communities, not just in your denomination. In order to do this work, uh, that's got to happen. Um, but to neg I, I wanted to talk from the parish perspective because there's a lot of collective power in a faith community, in a congregation. And we can either leave the work to being outside the congregations, um, or we can find ways within each and every congregation to build connections and use our resources of time and money and energy differently uh, in ways that will impact a wider community. Thank you. Anything is up? Hi there, I'm Cindy Dillard. I'm the Director of Religious Education at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Greensboro. Um, and I'm going to spend just a few minutes telling you what the UUA um, and my church and I, as a Unitarian Universalist, um, have been doing to try to address institutional racism. So um, you might not know what anything about Unitarian Universalism. Um, if you need to remember one thing, it's that we are a faith of deeds, not creeds. We are not a creedal religion. We are a covenantal religion. You might recognize this fellow, Henry David Thoreau, famous Unitarian, or this Universalist, Clara Barton, founder of uh, the Red Cross. You might even know this fellow, who's a Unitarian Universalist. Uh, but whether it's Unitarian or Universalist or Unitarian Universalist, we are, our faith is one of deeds, not creeds. So an event happened uh, on July 28th, 2007. Uh, a gunman entered the Tennessee Valley Unitarian Universalist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, and killed two people and wounded seven. And it was found in his car, a, a screed, basically against progressives, um, specifically um, against uh, the liberal movement. Um, and so the response of that church and the UUA was to um, try to embrace hate with love. And they founded, um, so standing on the side of love is a phrase, it comes from a song that was written by a minister in 2004. And when um, the fight for um, marriage equality in Massachusetts in 2004 was going on, that song and that phrase was used, um, standing on the side of love. Um, it also was used in California a little later on um, to counter Prop 8. Um, and in 2009, the UUA decided that they were going to um, mount a campaign to assist um, liberal churches um, to uh, stand up for the rights of uh, marginalized um, populations. Um, and so this is the logo. You might see yellow shirts uh, at uh, progressive events. Um, this is not a UU organization. It is a progressive organization, but we kind of spearheaded it. 
So it came out of that awful um, event, but we started seeing the usefulness in, um, in focusing it on specific causes. So for instance, in 2010, um, counteracting the uh, um, sheriff, uh, I can't remember his name now. Yes, thanks, Sheriff Arpaio. Um, a bunch of clergy and UUs um, descended on his town and were arrested standing up for immigrant families. And so the standing on the side of love um, has come to be adapted towards other causes. Um, and recently, in um, 2015, um, considering what had been going on in our country regarding policing, um, the UUA decided to pass uh, an action of uh, immediate witness to support Black Lives Matter. And so in the coming years, uh, or coming year, um, at many progressive events, you might have seen um, not only the basic yellow shirt, but a Black Lives Matter with the Standing on the Side of Love um, logo. Um, the following year, so this past June 2016, um, the uh, UUA has a general assembly once a year, and this year was entirely devoted to um, addressing institutional racism. These are, this is an example of some of the workshops that were, um, were supported by, at the general assembly. Um, what was really awesome for me as a recent um, North Carolinian who has attended Moral Mondays and um, HK on J is that our beloved Reverend Barber, um, his book, The Third Reconstruction, was selected to be um, the read of the year. So you use across the country are reading this book right now and having conversations. Uh, right, yes, we, uh, the Beacon Press um, also published the book. Um, and we're carrying the work forward. So this is our um, latest quarterly, um, and uh, it's called the UU World. And in it were some items that are continuing this conversation, uh, including an article, article from... Uh, President William G. Sinkford, who also happens to be um, African-American, he's our first UU African-American president, um, and his, uh, you might take a close look at this graphic. Um, he's addressing the myth of white innocence. We were ready to redeem the American dream, to take our place in the revolution, what happened. Um, I would recommend um, checking out this artist, um, she has a website, uh, Brittany Leanne Williams, um, very um, provocative graphics um, dealing with the separateness of white privilege and black reality. And this is another one. I don't know if you can see it very clearly, but um, this is a romantic picnic for three, and you can see where the third party is. Uh, and another article, um, this is dealing with uh, plantations and how you can't rewrite history, but you can use the past to uh, try to address um, injustices. So um, there are more than 1,000 UU congregations in the country. Um, after being energized by GA, 
um, several of my colleagues um, came to our board and asked us what we as a church could be doing to start the conversation because uh, we had really been very active uh, in the marriage equality conversation and LGBTQ rights, but we realized after leaving GA that other congregations were doing hard work um, on racial disparities and that hadn't been a conversation in our church. So we came to the board and um, told them a little bit about what we learned, and our president decided to devote his September um, newsletter article to opening the dialogue. And so uh, these are just some of the things that UUCG um, had been doing, um, sending uh, staff to the REI training. I went, our previous minister went. Um, we have, when we're aware of community actions, we have um, made it uh, made the church aware and um, and made it possible for people to attend if they don't have transportation. Um, a number of members of my church um, have started attending GARA meetings, both the White Caucus and the Joint Caucus. Um, we agreed to be a host site, just like First Baptist, a host site for doing our work. Um, we, uh, as I said, there's a board conversation about Black Lives Matter. We're talking about maybe being a host site for REI. Um, and what can you do? What have I been doing in my daily life? Um, you can continue to attend our do Doing Our Work series. We have um, series uh, January through June, and the schedule's over here. We also posted the schedule. We'll be emailing it out regularly, um, but we've got some fantastic folks lined up. Um, you can attend an REI training, Racial Equity Institute, if you have two days. It's a very intense uh, training, but you will um, not look at the world the same again. Um, you can join GARA and attend some of our meetings. Um, you can advocate in your community. Maybe you don't attend a church, um, but maybe you have a school community. Um, you can start bringing, uh, up, bringing up the question. Um, if you're really courageous, you can be an ally. Um, if you hear someone saying something that um, is racist, you can gently point that out. Um, you can participate in local and regional actions, such as HKNJ, Moral Mondays. You can use social media. This is something that I've been doing a lot lately. When I see a great article, because I'm online a lot at news sites, um, I'll go ahead and post it on my Facebook. It's like, look at this great article. Um, in fact, Gara is uh, compiling a um, database of great books and great articles. Um, and so you can use social media that way. Um, finally, um, I wear a Black Lives Matter bracelet. Um, Black Lives Matter bracelets were being handed out at GA, and a number of us uh, took them, and some of us wore them. Um, and this has been part of my um, using my white privilege, taking it out into the world. I don't leave home without it. Um, I don't wear it at home because it irritates me, but, <laughs> but that is a good thing. It irritates me, right? <laughs> um, and 
it's easy to assume that the Black Lives Matter movement is a bunch of young, young, angry people. Um, but I'm not so young. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit angry, but um, I'm really hopeful. And every day that I leave the house, this is an opportunity to start a conversation with maybe an African-American person who doesn't think that I have any thought whatsoever about them, or maybe with a white person who's like, what? So anyhow, that's it. Thanks for listening. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is John DeBeer, and um, it's my uh, privilege and pleasure to talk to you this evening about the Johnson Service Corps. Uh, and it's be up in just a sec. Yeah. So the, the Johnson Service Corps is a community of uh, young adults who are spending a year in service and social justice work. There are uh, four of them in a house in Durham and five in a house in Chapel Hill. And it's a diverse and ecumenical uh, community. Um, and uh, the, the service learning is a year long. Um, the core members are each in, um, spend a year serving a nonprofit in, in the area. Um, and they spend most of the working week doing that. Uh, they also have time to um, be an intentional community together, the two different ones in the different towns. And then on Friday mornings, they all meet together for ongoing um, training in servant leadership, vocational discernment, um, the uh, use of money to um, <coughs> support their, uh, their intentions for life, and, and so on. Um, so the, the vision of the Johnson Service Corps is to offer, a trans to offer transformative opportunities uh, for young adults to reimagine vocational discernment. It's a very um, you know, fruitful time because people are making decisions about what am I going to do with my life, actually? Where am I going to be putting um, my vocational, professional, uh, work-life energy? And so to be supporting people to invest those in a social justice context is really uh, important. Um, and um, uh, the hope is that they will pursue a lifelong journey of community engagement um, sustained by spiritual practice. I think it's, um, it's hard to sustain the stuff without a spiritual practice, in my experience. So um, uh, this is what they look like. And uh, those of you who are at the November REI training will uh, probably recognize them. Uh, they were there. Um, it's a really wonderful, spirited group of people. And as you can see, um, it's significantly diverse. Um, um, and, um, and that doesn't happen by accident. You know, our, our society is really stratified and, and um, divided. And unless there is um, a strong intention, which is followed up by committed action, um, you don't get groups of young adults who look like that. Um, and uh, there's a young director of the program, uh, Sarah Horton Campbell, um, who really has put a lot of energy into um, developing contacts with um, neighboring universities and um, institutions of higher learning, and is really committed to having a diverse group of people. Um, so um, so um, once, you, um, once you have a diverse group of people, um, then the 
the challenge is to become an actually diverse community and not just um, a, a mainstream community uh, with uh, people who look diverse in it. Um, right? Um, and that's, I mean, that's hard. Um, in fact, I would say it's, it's an adaptive challenge, meaning there isn't any easy set of rules you can apply and you do all this and it'll come out a transforming um, community. It won't. Um, it's, a, it's a trial and error and nobody really quite knows how to do it. Um, so it's, um, it's a lot of reflecting, um, getting a lot of feedback um, and a lot of praying um, and a lot of making mistakes and learning from those and then finding out what's working and building on that. Um, there are um, a couple of um, containers which help that happen. One is to have um, a, a covenant, um, a community covenant. So an agreement about how are we going to treat each other? Um, what specifically are we going to do so that the community is safe for me and for you and for everybody else here? And have that really explicit and agreed to and then be checking in, like, how are we doing? You know, what's really working well? Um, uh, what could we get better at? Um, and to do that regularly until there's a sense that the community is safe. Um, and um, there's a practice that I've introduced which um, I, 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 I like a lot and I think has been helpful. And it's called mutual invitation. And this is a way of leveling access to communication. Um, because different people feel empowered in a different way to speak. Um, uh, there was one um, program on Wednesday mornings that I was helping lead for the nine core members and also about an equal number of community members. Some of them were board members, uh, some of them just were folks from the community, some servant leadership. So there were about 20 of us in the room. And, um, uh, and sometimes I would ask an open-ended question, right, about the reading they'd done or about some, and what would happen is the middle-aged white men would talk. <laughs> then the middle-aged white women would talk. Then, if there was any time left over, um, the core members might be able to say something, right? Um, so, um, the mutual invitation is a practice where um, the leader uh, asks a question and then probably respond to it herself or himself, himself in my case. And then I would invite somebody else to respond. And if they were ready to respond, then they would respond. And then they would invite the next person. If they weren't re ready to respond, that would be fine, but they would still invite the next person. And this magically transfers the responsibility for who speaks to the entire community. And the leader no, le needs, no longer needs to be sitting there squirming, thinking, oh, you know, I wish this person would shut up so that somebody else could talk. Um, so um, that was one of the practices that we use. So. Um, the key learnings that have come out uh, from this. Um, to understand the centrality of intention. Um, we have a diverse community because that's a strong intention. It's built into the statement about what the Johnson Service Corps is. It's a diverse ecumenical community of young adults and then the practice to sustain that. Once you have the intention to, um, to 
adopt that as an, as an ad adaptive challenge to say, this is our intention and it's going to take work and the grace of God uh, in order to accomplish it um, and to keep working at it. Um, and so we'll have to practice ongoing evaluation and distinguish intention from impact. You know, to evaluate stuff means to be willing to hear uh, that what we're doing isn't working, even though we're doing it with the best intentions. Um, there was <coughs> one of the sessions we had, um, there was some group work happened and then we were meeting all together and, oops, that's my time up. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, uh, lost my train of thought. Um, yes, so um, um, I got some, some feedback at the end that uh, when I had said, okay, folks, it's time to stop your groups now. Let's come and rejoin the, the wider conversation, which I thought was facilitating the whole thing. Um, some people in the small group experienced as a hostile act. Right? So the, the trick is to really hear that, right? Certainly was not my intention to be hostile, but the impact of it was that it was experienced as hostile. I need to, I need to hear that and be able to breathe into, okay, I need to do this differently next time. Um, if to, to create a genuinely um, diverse community means uh, we have to be willing to know we don't know how to do it and have the humility to keep learning from one another. That's core. Um, mutual invitation I mentioned and um, just to, again, um, state that for me, a spiritual practice where um, I'm living into my deeper self, my true self, uh, is important. Otherwise, um, my own ego gets involved and I get reactive and um, doesn't work. Thanks very much. Wow, it's so great to see so many people here tonight. Boy, thank you so much. Um, I also want to thank those of you who organized tonight, Audra and Claire and the people of Gera. Um, I know how much work goes into this, and I just really appreciate uh, the, that we're having these meetings. Um, to me, it's really a, a wonderful sign of our community. Um, also, I want to say uh, I have a lot of ex-colleagues who uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, Guilford College and the work that we've been trying to do over the last 20 years in terms of uh, transforming it from a historically white institution into an anti-racist one. And I have the enviable task of trying to do that in seven minutes. Um, so anyway, so I'm going to just lay out three or four threads and they're going to sort of meander. Um, and if people uh, want to ask questions further uh, later, um, we, can, we can pursue more in depth. The first thing is, one of the things that we did right, we, did, we made many mistakes, but one of the things that we did right was from the very beginning, when we decided that we want to try to transform the institution, we did it um, as a multiracial, multi-ethnic um, coalition. And we brought together uh, faculty, students, staff, board of trustee members, alumni, and community members in a way that we wanted to make sure that we remain accountable to our uh, colleagues of color, allies, as well as to the broader uh, Guilford, uh, Guilford County community, Greensboro community. Um, 
we were, in terms of what we did was we created an anti-racism team um, about 16, 17 years ago. And we were able to uh, go to the Board of Trustees in 2002 and get their endorsement to become a anti-racist institution. At that same time, we developed a 20-year plan. And I'll say, at that time, I thought, really, it'll take 20 years? Uh, just to show my naivete and, and the learning curve that I've um, experienced over the last 16 years. Um, and uh, at that time, uh, you know, began working on, on trying to really transform the institution. Um, one of the things that we, we did was able to, we've continued, though the team itself has, has uh, not maintained itself um, during all those years. We have uh, maintained a core of people, uh, 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 black, white, Latino, um, uh, Asian as well, in terms of uh, working together and collaborating on this work. So we have maintained that, and that's been a, a very important part of our process of making sure that we are uh, working in collaboration. Um, instead of what many white institutions do, which is a, uh, a bunch of core white people get together and decide we need to make these changes, and oh, by the way, who can we get from uh, colleagues of color to help us? And already have set the thing in motion and then say, why are you not joining with us um, after we've already made all the main important decisions? So that was one of the things that we did well. One of, one of the things that we have done for over 20 years at Guilford College is to offer regular workshops, two to three day workshops um, of the kind uh, that people have already referenced. We've used uh, outside consultants, um, our allies, Crossroads Ministry, uh, People's Institute, more local um, racial equity institute. Um, and then about 10 years ago, we realized that we had the uh, resources, the skills on campus to be able to do it um, on our own in-house and so we have that is something that has been part of our uh, institution for for the last 20 years um, and we we've, we've done some changes we've uh, gotten a lot of uh, response back from people well you do it on the weekends can you do it during the week uh, uh, as reasons for why they are not able to attend and so we've tried lots of different um, ways of doing this um, to find that people came up with other reasons for why they couldn't attend the workshops. Um, I'll say this, in terms of an academic institution, there are two things about our particular institution that, that make this work difficult. The first thing is, every year, 25% of our community is new. That means that no matter how much consciousness raising we are able to, to undertake within a year, the next year, we're going to have 25% people coming from a larger culture that, uh, for the most part, are not going to, uh, uh, are, you know, are not going to be aware of institutional racism. Um, though I have to say, we always get a number of students who come to campus um, already aware of these issues, and they represent, and they're some of the most wonderful um, uh, young adults that I've had had the real privilege to work with. Uh, so that's, that's been very important. Um, but the problem with the workshops is what happens afterwards. And what we found was, yes, people went through the workshops. They found, um, you know, many cases people had uh, 
major epiphanies in terms of understanding system, systematic racism for the first time, understanding the history. But then the question is, then what? Um, and so what we tried to do over the years was to um, provide programming like this, um, to use caucusing um, in terms of trying to keep uh, people engaged in the work, but, but always felt that we were running up against uh, a sort of an institutional capacity problem, which I'll get, get to next. Uh, where the, the work that's, that's needed is far more than uh, what we were always able to, to meet. Um, and so that always was a struggle for us. Um, even in the case where uh, we have uh, people who go through the workshops and really say, I really want to um, you know, use this stuff, how do I apply it to my work? I get how these social systems um, affect, you know, create privilege and they create oppression in our society. I understand the sort of the history, but how in the registrar's department or in the econ department or in the housing department, how do I look at, you know, to what extent those same kinds of practices are sort of infusing what I do on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of being able to bring it back to that level of sort of concrete how is it that each one of us in our own little um, niches is also contributing um, to uh, creating situations where we're not serving all of our students equally well? And so that's something that we have um, recognized as an issue and, and as yet have really been able to sort of think through how to, how to uh, solve that particular one. The last issue that I want to talk about is um, institutional capacity and support from the institution. You might think that if we got the Board of Trustees support to become an anti-racist uh, institution, that we would have gotten all the resources we needed. And of course, that was not the case. Um, on the one hand, we always would get help for support for, for programming. We, uh, the, the college eventually did uh, develop a diversity plan and a diversity action committee, which allowed some of us to use some of our time uh, to do this work. But for the large part, what we were doing was uh, trying to transform the institution in ways that at least parts of the institution didn't want with volunteer labor. So we were trying to do this, we have been trying to do this on top of our full-time jobs. And so one of the things is that we've always lacked is, is sort of that institutional commitment. And so We've had plenty of ideas in terms of how we might address this and that and, uh, and provide some sort of ongoing programming, but never having the, sort of the, the wherewithal, the resources to be able to do it. Um, because this work is, is incredibly time intensive. Um, it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one working with folks, um, uh, et cetera. And then the other piece that uh, is always, uh, is particularly difficult at an academic institution is academic freedom. So as we are talking about encouraging faculty to go through the workshops, many of them are resisting, and one of, the, one of their sort of forms of resistance is, well, this is indoctrination. And, uh, you know, we, we value academic freedom. So that's, that's, again, something that's particular to academic institutions. Having shared all this, I want to tell you I remain optimistic. And one of the reasons I remain optimistic is I do wonder if to, even though 
we never got the board, other than a few members, to go through the workshops. That when they went to hire our most recent president, that they were willing to take a chance in hiring Dr. Fernandez, who has a background, who has a history, and has an understanding of these issues. And so for the first time, um, I really have the sense that we have um, real support at the top. Um, and I think that, like many campuses last year, we had uh, student protests, part of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's been something that uh, has happened many times during my tenure at the college. And this was really the first time that I had some pride in terms of how the college responded. And the college is taking the, the list of demands that the students have come up with, integrating them into the, the new strategic planning process that's, that's being involved. They're using those demands to look at uh, holding the VPs accountable for, for changes. We now have an academic dean, unfortunately, who is interim, who has brought in um, another consultant, facilitators, Allies for Change, a group out of Michigan, to talk to the faculty about um, sk raising skills in terms of talking about race in the classroom, um, and then also uh, limiting uh, and, and then dealing with microaggressions as they might occur in the classroom. And so that's, that's been a very positive thing. Um, and so I do feel that um, we, you know, that we have, again, um, a, a very uh, active uh, caucus, white caucus that's meeting, and we have a number of faculty and, and staff, new people who are part of it. So I, I do think that there's some, I'm feeling really optimistic about um, the future, though I now know that 20 years um, is still way, you know, way much shorter than it's, than it's going to take. This work is, um, it's taken centuries to, to create this, the structures and the, and the psychology that has affected all of us, um, and it's going to take a very long time. Um, but, we, but we need to work together. We need to work with our colleagues of color. Um, and I think that we're really on the, the path to justice. And uh, so with that, I'm going to sit down. Good evening. I told Audra before we started that I feel a little bit like a phony, so I'm going to put that out there to the group, and hopefully my experience and what I'm going to contribute tonight is going to be of value. Um, I am Katherine Johnson. I am the director of Guilford County's Family Justice Center. The Family Justice Center has been open for about a year, and so while I don't, my views don't represent that of Guilford County, they represent someone who works in county government, um, who's a person in this community, uh, and so I'll put that disclaimer before I share um, my experiences. So Family Justice Center work is very much public safety and oftentimes uh, social justice work in, in many forms and facets. What we know about violence is it extends all socioeconomic classes, it also extend, extends all ethnic so the work at the Family Justice Center is broad as far as those persons that we're seeing who come into the center for service and help. And oftentimes in my work, uh, on a daily basis, I see those intersections of inequities that arise with systemic responses to hurting families and vulnerable families in our community. At the Family Justice Center, we're an access point for about 50 professionals who work from 
15 different disciplines in one location to provide coordinated services to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse. So we have law enforcement, prosecutors, legal services, social services, community-based organizations who can do counseling and advocacy. Um, we have expertise in child abuse and elder abuse. So we have a real broad range of service professionals on site offering um, services. And it's a real coordinated effort. Um, the Family Justice Center Administrative Team, which is myself and two employees, really are the kind of link and glue to all of these various professionals trying to better coordinate access to resources. And here in Guilford County, um, in 2013 and in 2014, we led the state with the most domestic violence deaths in our city. Um, and so when you get a reputation like that at a state level and a national level, and people are saying, what's happening in Guilford County? Um, that begins to turn the political wheels and get some conversations going at the elected official level, local leadership level, and some decision makers saying, hey, we don't want to be known for this anymore, and we have a real problem in our community. So these big players, district court judges, clerk of court, elected officials, nonprofit executive directors, about 17 different agencies, UNCG, A&T, Elon Law, were all at the table sitting around saying, what are we going to do to make things better for victims of crime in our community? Because what was happening is families in crisis were going, reaching out for services. They were falling through the cracks, and the systems that were put in place to support them were crushing them. And we had an example after example after example of how that was happening. Um, and so we knew that change had to be made. Um, these big partners uh, also recognized that in their ability to operate in isolation, what often happened is that rules were created to manage capacity, but those rules for families who were most vulnerable in our community often became barriers to accessing resources. So rules to make me manage my caseload be create another problem or another hoop for a family to jump through, which further limited the services that were available to them. The steering committee comprised of all these leaders that were meeting, they met every other month and they really kind of made the decision that we're going to go with the big box systems in town. So those agencies and those nonprofits that aren't necessarily credentialed or don't meet state st uh, funding for state standards, um, will just focus on the, bigs, uh, the big players in town. But what that did was begin to create some separation between some of the grassroots organizations who really self-identified as being the resource for their community to support victims of crime. They felt mar even more marginalized. And so very similar to what some of my friends talked about is mostly white leadership sat around a table and talked about how to solve problems in the community and made some decisions about how to do that. Um, now, fortunately, they made some good decisions. and. Um, and thinking about how to best serve victims of crime. And so I joined Guilford County about a year before the Family Justice Center opened. And so my strategy, my background is marriage and family counseling. And so I kind of got started in the field of domestic violence doing individual counseling. And so my strategy had always kind of been one-on-one -on -one relationship or family-based relationship and helping me kind of discern what was going on, what was the individual's lived experience in this community and how they were at the individual level feeling impacted by these big systems. 
And so while I knew well and understood how the executive partner team of the Family Justice Center would influence the development of the center, I also recognized the, the real need to sit down with people who were having lived experiences, who had maybe felt like they had fallen through the cracks, who had maybe felt like their voice wasn't heard and they didn't get to drive part of the conversation. And so I started having lots and lots of one-on-one -on -one meetings. And those meetings often included going into areas of Greensboro that I had never heard of, sitting at tables and sitting around, um, sitting in meetings that were not in the typical eight to five hour. Oftentimes they're at odd times at night or Saturdays and lasted uh, many, many hours. But I recognized the value of going to pe people, being in their space and really just listening. Um, and through that listening, really uh, hearing what the voices of people who were trying to survive and trying to access resource here in Guilford County really had been and how that voice um, needed to be heard at the table of these decision makers making and how folks would access resources. And so through building that relationship and learning of what these families' experiences were with the system, it really helped me think about how to apply the philosophy of the Family Justice Center, the coordination work that had been happening in the community, but making that applicable to the person who was going to come in the door seeking help. Um, I also recognized, and what was really probably one of the biggest realizations that I had, is that oftentimes um, members of the minority community did not think services applied to them. So there may be a resource that was being offered in the community that I knew if, if um, by the people providing it and the types of services that they were excellent, um, but that, that life-saving services, safety planning, access to shelter, access to emergency housing, um, access to navigating the judicial system that we know could improve their outcomes in the criminal justice process, but they didn't feel like those services necessarily applied to them or they didn't reach, receive those services until after a crisis had already happened. So law enforcement has already responded to your home and now they're telling you what you have to do in order to stay on the track that the system was setting you on. And so they didn't feel like they had the power to make their own decisions in that process. Um, and I think that some of that, my experience said that some of the outreach that was happening was only the outreach happening when someone called and said, hey, can you come talk to our church? Can you come to our community? So it was outreach by invitation versus outreach with intention, which is a very different type of community engagement. In counseling, and Audra mentioned this, um, we often use analogy, particularly in marriage counseling, trust equals truth over time. And I think that that analogy, and oftentimes the cycle of violence, when we think about domestic violence and it's about power and control, and we know the systems put in place to support us often replicate that system of power and control, which equals oppression. That the concept around trust equaling truth over time, to me, seems much more applicable in this line of work than it ever has before. Because I can't expect someone who's never met me, who doesn't know what Katherine Johnson is trying to do amongst 50 partner agencies in one location, is going to get it. So how do we develop and establish trust with someone and give them the option? We talk about a menu of options to make their own decisions for themselves versus me telling them what I think is best in their life. I also think that when you think about in terms of process change, what I've really seen being most effective in Family Justice Center work, and I think we're working hard to do this, is in systemic response and changing how our institutions focus on process change, that this means the person closest to the client and the client themselves have full authority and discretion to navigate their pathway. 
and in systems like government that are often set from the bureaucracy of working its way down, so often the person on the front line does not feel empowered to make decisions, does not feel empowered to ask questions, and so if the provider doesn't feel that way, well then we know that the person they're sitting across is even more un unless likely to feel that way. And so thinking about terms of process change and being in relationship with someone really seems to me to be a way to kind of upturn the institution and how the institutions have been set forth here in our community. The last thing I'll say is we've been on this journey um, of looking at what does it mean to have shared responsibility, shared accountability, and shared partnership. And so often we use the word collaboration, and that is such a hot topic word that we say over and over again, let's collaborate, let's collaborate. But how most people view collaboration is actually called networking. So when I network with Aldra and I have my brochure or give her my business card, hey Aldra, I'm Catherine, this is what I do, here's my card, nice to meet you. And then I move on and network with Shelly or someone else that I know. We're not really collaborating, um, but we've kind of tricked ourselves into thinking that we partner like that. That is a form of partnership. I know what you do, you know what I do. Yay, we collaborate. If I have someone who needs your help, I will send them your way and you do the same for me. But what real collaboration is, and that is a form of collaboration, I'll say collaboration's on a spectrum, networking is on this end. But what real collaboration and when we have arrived, which I don't know that we'll ever arrive because it's a constantly evolving process, is it's about integration. It's about shared resources and shared responsibility. It's about shared failures and it's about integrity. Because when you truly collaborate and you're working to share resources and you can set that ego aside, you can set the money that drives us all and from doing the right thing, and you can really be intentional to be in relationship with someone, then true collaborative work can happen and that integrated systemic change can really take place. So I think that, a cons that idea of really moving beyond one sphere of engagement and what is, my, what is my current sphere and who am I in relationship with and the strategies that I have really implemented in racial and equity work and building relationships with people who are different from me have really been from that one-on-one -on -one level of sitting down and just building relationship over time. Yet, I too am hopeful in creating pathways that are going to create hope and create change in our community by doing that one person at a time. So, that's me. Well, thank you all very much for your contributions and the many perspectives you've offered us. I think it would be useful if in groups of three or four, your immediate neighbors, you kind of took a little while to think about and talk with each other about what issues are rising for you. What do you draw from this? What are you thinking about? What, have your reaction, what are your reactions as you think about the institutions you're part of and how you might uh, participate in, lead, initiate or join into their work on becoming anti-racist and racially and otherwise equitable. So uh, how about a few minutes of doing that in three or four groups of three or four neighbors?
Thank you all very much for coming, for being very engaged. I'm optimistic that the optimism of our panelists will be carried on because I see it in your enthusiasm and your thinking. Um, I encourage you to sign up if you haven't already signed up because a lot of the material will be sent to you by email and there are some hard copies of it over there for those who don't do or like email. Our next session, which will be announced on a flyer that looks like this, which you will get more than once, will be at uh, the Westminster Presbyterian Church. It will be David Billings, the author, author of a book called Deep Denial, The Persistence of White Racism in Our Society. Is that right? Some white supremacy in our society. There will be book groups organized, reading groups organized for uh, this before David Billings comes on January the 24th. So if you are interested in participating in a book group, there are cards around. You could put your name and contact information on there and say book group or coffee chat. If you would like to have a talk with members of GERA or with the, or with the um, panelists, I'm volunteering them sort of like that. Um, if you would like to have a coffee chat with them, you could indicate that. There are people in the White Caucus who will try and make that happen. If you're interested in participating in the uh, Greensboro, the uh, Greensboro Healthcare Disparities Collaborative, which is specifically addressing healthcare disparities, institutionally based healthcare disparities, there's information on that. Yes? Claire, you said January the 20th. 24th. 24th. Sorry. If I said the 20th, that was an error. 24th. It's on here correctly. Sorry? I wrote down 24th. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, um, so there's, and all of that information will be available electronically, but if you want specific contact, about those things, put it on your card and turn in your card. There's also the basket for Fusion Films. Thank you, Eric, very much. Um, <laughs> and while we would love to have con conversation and questions and answers with the panelists, we really don't have time. And the real focus is on how you take this back to your institutions. So the panelists are willing to en engage electronically with you and then maybe a coffee chat or something else, but we aren't going to do questions and answers tonight because it wouldn't, you'd be here till 10 o'clock. Uh, are there other things that I should have announced that I didn't? Is there something wrong at 10 o'clock? <laughs> <laughs> so at 10 o'clock, we need beer and popcorn. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> very good. Thank you all very much for coming. We look forward to seeing you in January, and happy holidays.